Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Here is my food-loving friend, well, colleague, Thea Lenarducci. Thea, hello. Hello. I was going to do some mock offence-taking, oh. but I can't be oh, bothered. Can't be bothered. Uh, I thought we could do favorite, your favourite foods in this beginning, because okay. I think I, um, we always talk about food. Right. And I thought we could, uh, over the course of the next few weeks, learn more about your tastes. Okay. What, Favourite crisps? Yeah. I'm not really into crisps. I knew you wouldn't. Except I do really like the San Carlo ones. Oh. Just so that's on are they brand. Itali- are they Italian? Yeah, yeah. And they're particularly thin and are, salty. Are crisps part of Italian yeah. food culture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, with a glass of something. Yeah. Well, because, you know, it's basically, it's the law in Italy that uh, if you're having a drink um, before, I think it's 8pm, you, you have to be given some little stuzzichini, like nibbles, so crisps no. or pretzels or nuts, or some places, it becomes a competitive thing, so from bar to bar, each one is trying to outdo uh, its competitor, and so you'll have these lovely platters of bruschette and salumi. And it's a bit like tapas, in, 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 because but in, free. But free. It's free sometimes in Spain, I think, isn't it? If you buy a drink, you get tapas. But mm. in Spain, it's illegal. Initially, you have to... Mm. That certainly used to be the case. Really? Yeah. I love finding this sort of stuff. <laughs> uh, oh, you hear favourite biscuit? Favourite biscuit again. Uh, it depends. Is it is it a sort of an everyday oh. biscuit or a special biscuit? Uh, make your uh, impose your own constraints. Okay, well, everyday biscuit. I'll go with I'll go with the milk chocolate digestive. Very good. My uh, my nonno used to work in the McVitie's factory on the production line. So oh, amazing! There's, there's Did a, you get them free? Loyalty there. No, this was before my time. This is when he was in England. Yeah. Uh, before he went back to Italy, uh, and as a special special occasion biscuit, Grassmere gingerbread. Yeah. I think we could do this every week. I'll pick another. Well, another you're not going to. You're not, not okay, going to counter f- with your own. Well, my favourite crisps. I'm going to yet again show my plebeian tastes here, aren't I? Skips. I, I did like. Do you know what? <laughs> I like McCoy's. What's it? McCoy's. <laughs> McCoy's. Salt and vinegar. Okay, that's all right. That's okay. classic. That's uh, solid. And then my favourite biscuit. I like anything chocolatey. <laughs> you say that with a smile. Yeah, just. I love it. I love a chocolate biscuit, like the thicker, yeah. a thick chocolate. I mean, I'll go with milk chocolate digestives as well. It's a classic. Yeah, we can't as an everyday biscuit, it's difficult to fault. Yeah, exactly. All right, there's a whole podcast in here, but we won't do that. But <laughs> I will try and come up with other areas to ask you about. Because also, I feel we get a bit of a tour of Italian culture. As you never well. know; we might end up friends by the end of it. Yeah, yeah indeed. <laughs> People do bond over food, don't they? Anyway, enough of that. Uh, Here's the bit where I encourage you to subscribe to the TLS, not Thea, you, the listener. Use this special offer code, the-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. That's podcast offer. The best price anywhere on the internet, five issues for £5 or $5. Coming up this week, one of the least satirical things you can say about modern politics is that it has made satire impossible, what with everything being so ridiculous and awful. Well, we asked the satirist Madeleine Brettingham just how hard it is to be funny about today's political culture. Samuel Beckett was one of the most mordant observers of the ridiculousness of the human condition. A new version of Endgame is on at the moment, and TLS editor Toby Lishtig can tell us whether it's worth waiting for. And you've heard us talk about Aleppo on this show enough. What actually is it? Thea will attempt to introduce the subject without using the letter O, although she won't.
So, is it the best of times or the worst of times to be a satirist? A good question asked and answered this week by Madeline Brettingham, who should know as she's a writer for the News Quiz on Radio 4. She likens being a comedy writer to feeling a bit like a dog trying to chase six tennis balls without dropping the one in its mouth, which sounds fun but exhausting. Madeline has also found time to read two books that touch on the subject, Stuart Lee's March of the Lemmings, Brexit in Print and Performance 2016-19, and an essay collection called The Joke is on Us, political comedy in late neoliberal times. So she really should have the answer. Madeline's in the studio with us now. Madeline, hello. Hello, I hope I do. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you do. Now, before we talk about the books, because they're both interesting, um, it's a cliche, isn't it, this idea that satire is, is difficult now? Is it true? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. I've kind of been obviously thinking about it a bit, writing this article. I think the kind of answer is yes, up to a point. I mean, I guess it's always been satire I guess I think of as like justified mockery so there's always a debate about is this satire have I got the right target am I punching up um is what I'm saying you know sort of proportionate but I think it has got I think it has got harder um, do you think people recently. think like that yeah I do. Do, do do satirists worry about punching down and I think people take it much more seriously than you might think yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do I think and you make this point that everyone's a satirist now which has been difficult for not your show necessarily, but I was thinking of a show like Have I Got News For You, a week, that weekly show where a lot of the best gags about something, a lot of the best satirical takes can happen instantly on social media. So the pressure, is the pressure higher on the satirists to come up with news stuff? Yeah, I think so, definitely. The market is so crowded now. Um, there's much more pressure on you to come up with something original and novel. That's got a lot harder because of Twitter and obviously not everybody using Twitter is being paid to write satire, but there's that attention economy where you can get loads of retweets and a massive buzz from thinking up a good joke about the news. Yeah. So your average kind of punter in the street has got more of an incentive to come up with the one line than before you do. So I think it, I think it does really add to the pressure. And Has that made it harder for you, do you feel, in, in your job writing for the news crews? I think it makes it sort of harder, but a bit more interesting, because I think it really helps you to kind of drill down into, number one, what's the voice of the show? What's this host and this show got to say about this story that nobody else can? And it kind of makes you drill down into, what, what do I feel about this story? Like, kind of... Um, uh, zoning out from all the chatter around me, what do I think is the right angle? What do I think is the most important thing? And, like, what can I bring... Uh, what kind of obse- observations can I bring to this that nobody else can? And that and that can be quite interesting. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what really good satire does is you get not just um, an insight into the issue, but you get an insight into the satirist as well. Yeah. Has, I'm trying to work out how to ask this without sounding really damp, but has um has <laughs> really it what? changed damp? What does damp mean? Well, listen, hold okay. on. So has it changed in terms of the climate, the audience's mood? Um Thinking in terms of us becoming, you know, everyone's always saying, increasingly polarised, um, does it become harder to laugh without worrying about this is exactly what they think we'll be laughing at, the others, you know, the uh, them and the us? Ah, right, OK. Is there so, a smugness, you know, sometimes? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, like, um, part of that is that there's just so much more feedback now if you're producing satire, so, you know, you'll get it. Uh, people writing you used to get people writing in but now you'll get people on twitter kind of adding the show and saying what they think and you'll get it from the left you'll get it from the right you'll get it from all parts of the political spectrum so you kind of know whatever you write whatever you perform is going to get criticized by somebody and i think that can have a bit of a paralyzing effect sometimes the second thing you were saying about sort of the idea of like playing into people's hands yeah i think that's also a con- concern but then there's a sort of good size to all of this because it means it can be an incentive not to be lazy, I suppose. But, but in an ideal world, you want to write a gag that whatever your political beliefs, both both sides will find it funny. Yeah, because I think um, the guys who wrote uh, Yes Minister said this, but satire is about the seven deadly sins, really. Um, the stuff that it's mocking, everybody should be able to point out and say, yeah. yeah, this is wrong, this is laughable. So you are kind of aiming for something that's a bit universal, I think. Yeah, but that's not the knock on it, is it? Because the knock from often angry right-wing people is that satire is particularly the and comedy generally is particularly that there's like that one right wing inverted commas comedian who seems to pop up at everywhere as yes. the right wing comedian <laughs> Jeff Northcote is Jeff it? Northcote, yeah. yeah and I'm, I'm not criticizing him but he's like seen as the right wing comedian because everyone else is seen as sort of liberal left yeah 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 is that a I mean is that true do you think or does it matter or is it just people looking for things to get angry about the BBC about which is a, a common problem of the age as well yeah I think it's I don't know it's an interesting one because I think it's just the way it's kind of fanned out. And I, and I don't know why that is. I guess um, people who are drawn to satire and mockery are maybe, maybe people who feel like, for whatever reason, they're 
not part of the establishment. Yeah. Maybe that's been the case. So it, there's a tendency to be left wing there. Um, but you do have, you know, people on, in writers' rooms that, and people on panel. You know, there's Simon Evans does a news quiz quite a lot. There's um, and Jeff as well. I think you do have um, right wing voices. In Is there places. a consensus in a writers' room? Do you ever feel that where you actually say, so you have to say, guys, we all believe the same thing here? Do you ever feel that there's a consensus in a writers' room? You will often. In that sort of situation, because I think comedy writers are people who slightly dislike consensus, yeah. so you'll often get someone who kind of wade in and be devil's advocate or just sort of go, or the producer might do it, particularly on um, uh, a satire show like the News Quiz, the producer might come in and say, all right, OK, well, we're all looking at it from this angle, but have you considered? Or I know that I'm going to get letters in from people saying X, Y, Z, yeah. so what do, what, what do you think about that? So you sort of try and sort of mix it up, mix it up but um, yeah. Are satirists generally embittered show-offs writing to tight deadlines? <laughs> uh, well, I incriminated myself. Yeah, I, I, thought, I thought that was a fair line to quote back at you because you are a satirist yourself. Well, I did say that good satir should reveal something about yeah, itself, yeah, yeah, so yeah, and I've yeah. just done it. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean... You would die in a writer's room without being that, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think really there's something about satire where you're kind of like um, flicking pellets at the teacher from the back of the classroom. Particularly if you're a writer, you're not on the stage saying these things, but you, you're getting them said by yeah. somebody. So it's kind of like an extreme, you've, um, a professional form of passive aggression in a way, you're sort of <laughs> <laughs> teasing. So I think satire tends to appeal to people or has been used by people whose only weapon is available weapon is insult. So I guess if you had another means of if you felt you had something else open to you go for that it's a way yeah. of kind of it's a protest isn't it so yeah. it's you um use the word weapon there yeah um and that's something that quite often is is brought to satire you know is it is it futile if it's not actually enacting change for that that's I mean, how do you, how would you respond to that? Yeah, it's really interesting. So I thought a lot about that when I was reading The Joke Is On Us, so the book of essays, because there's a sense of like the futility of satire, I'd say, something that sort of comes up a lot there. And the way, I, I guess what I'd say to does satire work is, how would you know? <laughs> there's got to be sort of an alternate history where it doesn't exist. I think it's, I think jokes or um, sketches don't tend to bring down governments, um, but they're part of a cultural conversation that can change things, but but slowly, I guess. So, but I was, thinking, I was thinking of, uh, you know, spitting image in the 80s, laughed at everybody both sides from what I remember I mean I don't I mean I'm sure that's probably true I'm not definitively aware of it yes minister and Jonathan Lynn writes for the paper uh, who wrote yes minister Mm. and he was from the left and his writing partner was from the right but they were equal opportunities they were going at the political and the civil service class generally so it's why it's lasted um that's a risk isn't it now that if, if if it's Trump can say there's a certain type of people who will always laugh at me uh and therefore, I am a, vi- a victim. And, and, and there's this question that theory gets, does it need to be more even-handed? Does it need to be even-handed to be effective satire? It's really difficult. I mean, I guess two things I'd say about that is, one is in a world where Donald Trump exists and is so risible, yeah. it's quite hard to feel... I mean, I think anyone will, anyone across the political spectrum, unless you were a sort of hardcore Trumpist, would agree that he deserves more mockery than most other political yeah. leaders. So it's So it's, would you be doing your job... Um, if you directed as much uh, mockery as political opponents as you did at Trump. I don't yeah. know. It's a really tricky one. Because also we have the same problem for the TLS, because I'd love to write a be- to publish a beautiful 3,000-word essay on the virtues of Donald Trump, but I can't think of a single person who'd be able to write a beautiful essay who would argue for the virtues of Donald Trump. You might get but people who say... into fiction. I mean... <laughs> yeah. But that's the point, though, because you might get people who aren't that... Who, who can see some virtues in it but mm. it feels to me very few people are going to say about Donald Trump he is a positive force and yeah and ultimately I think as a satirist you've got there's got to be you've got to feel there's some truth in what you're saying yeah. I mean even if you're doing it for even if you're doing it for money I mean you you've still got to feel in order to do it well you've got to feel like you're really um sticking the knife into someone who deserves it which brings us to Stuart Lee uh self-consciously collecting his own writing about how he thinks of things <laughs> to write about and then writing about them yeah uh, I, I I kind of love Stuart Lee, but is this too much irony uh, in one place? Is it? Oh, it's really. I mean, I I really enjoy the book, and I guess because I I kind of really uh, sympathise with him in some ways because I suppose he raises a lot of the same issues as in, in the joke is on us about what it's like to be someone writing satire for money. Yeah, and obviously he's sort of sending himself up as part of that as part of the book. Um, but he does that really well. And probably, I guess that's the sort of... The, the book, I guess, is a satire of 
the satire industry of the yeah, poster writing it. And I can, I can see why if that's not your thing, you might go, oh, no, that's a bit too... Yeah. But that's true, um, of his, that's true of his stand-up as well, isn't it? Yeah. When it's done perfect, when it's brilliant, I think at his best, he's as, he's probably better than anyone else. Yeah. But when he's not a thousand percent at his best, it can feel a bit navel-gazing. I think there's something about... Because in the book, there's the columns and then there's the stand-up um, set as well. And the, the stand-up set, even transcribed, is just like killer from start to finish and I think there's maybe um, he's worked on that character of the stand-up persona of Stuart Lee for longer than he's worked on the character of Stuart Lee the columnist so I just wonder if he's he's sort of um, it's just a more developed character. Are they characters? I think they're versions of himself yeah I guess he's deliberately ambiguous about to what extent I always wonder whether that's true when he says, because you write about this, that he talks about, he says, uh, I prefer the stand-up comedian Lee to the columnist Lee. If I and the comedian Lee were to meet the columnist Lee, I think we would beat him up and leave him in a ditch with his glasses smashed. Which is a joke anyway in itself. And yeah. he's, he's being ironic even as he says that. But, you know, Ricky Gervais always says there's a persona, stage persona. But every time I've seen Ricky Gervais interviewed, it's the same persona as he is on stage. And... Is Stuart Lee that different? I mean, is, is it an easy thing to say? Because so, he wants to give himself light. I mean, a satirist maybe needs licence to say the unsayable. Yes, yeah, yeah. And so you kind of have, and you get away with it by putting it in someone else's mouth. Yes. <laughs> and he writes for himself. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but he for himself has to do it in his own mouth. And though, therefore he has to maybe pretend this character exists to, to give him the freedom to say something. Yeah, I think there's a sort of thing, certainly in the like, collected columns, and you can see that in a lot of the comments he gets below the line, where people get very frustrated because they're like, but where are you in this? You know, what do you actually, what do you care about? What are you yeah, really you saying about yeah. Brexit? What do you, what's at stake for you kind of thing, which I, which I can sort of get. And somehow in the stand-up, there's just more of a sense of him as a real person, yeah. <laughs> which is perhaps what makes it easier to, to, in, to, to engage with as, as an audience or a reader. Um, but I think whether you find it sort of really fun and witty or tiresome, I guess it's a matter of taste, isn't it, at the end of the day? Yeah. Yeah. And does it, does it create, do you feel a sort of a sense of detachment when you're, when you're watching or reading the news and you're looking at it as potential material? Does it create a kind of detachment or does it make you experience the news differently somehow? Well, that's a good one because I think something I've really noticed over the last few years is people who uh, write or perform a satire for a living saying... I, I'm taking breaks <laughs> from the news. So even people for you know for whom yeah. that's their job are saying I just can't I just need a, a break from this. Um, but one of the things that they bring up in the joke is on us and my favourite I think part of the book were the observations about the sort of market forces on satirists to engage with the news in a particular way and the fact that you you're constantly on the lookout for things that are sort of um, both ridiculous and apocalyptically awful, you know, <laughs> and how that can kind of um, lead you to present things in an exaggeratedly sort of negative way um so i think it does it does kind of change the way you engage with the news is there something is there when you listen to a story say the coronavirus that's right for making jokes about mm. is it right for making jokes about when 10 people in britain have died or a thousand people in china have died or when it gets to ten thousand, when it gets to a hundred thousand when it gets to a million do you have to think like that? Or actually, to do your job, do you have to think, you know what, my job is to make jokes that I'm comfortable with, but jokes about anything? Well, yeah, I mean, you absolutely have to think like that because if you go in, you know, for example, if on the news quiz you were to write 10 jokes about a story in which people and the audience just sat there in complete, si complete silence, you've got to kind of really, really judge it quite carefully. And that can be about all kinds of kind of random things, both, you know, how... Um, dark or tragic the story is but also um how close to home it is if there's a target so if there's a sort of systemic or government failure where you you can direct all the jokes at and maybe ignore the sort of not ignore it but not make light of the kind of human tragedy so there you have to kind of handle them in a really delicate way and i think it's really varies from story to story and just needs this kind of sense of smell almost about what the audience are going to accept yeah. um you, there's no sort of um recipe for for doing it and sometimes you'll be surprised by what you can get away with and other times you'll get an ooh when you're not expecting it is the audience a good judge of that though i mean because there's an ethical question beyond that that say the audience laughs at something that's pretty awful yeah does that laugh wipe everything clean? I mean, is the, is the audience the arbiter mm. or is there a higher standard that you'd have to hold yourself to? I think it's just got to be your conscience. Yeah. <laughs> sad, yeah. As, sad as it is to say, it's kind of that's, that's what you've got to do. You've got to kind of think, can I, can I justify this to myself? Yeah. 
Um, and then the audience is a good barometer as well. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and sometimes we'll, the audience will let you know that you've slipped up or sometimes you'll think, mm, I didn't like that laugh, you know, and it's, yeah. it's kind of a mixture of the two things. I think you're, um, in your final paragraph you, you have the, the, the phrase, a moment of satire is a moment of shared moral clarity, which kind of seems to sum it up and it almost suggests like a, a moment of quiet after the laughter where you know that there's some kind of higher truth there. Yeah, because I think that's what's amazing. I mean satire is really just taking the mickey and I think in life that's what's amazing about taking the mickey you see something you don't think is right you think oh is anyone else thinking this you think I'm just gonna make a, have a little dig other people laugh you're like great other people agree with me and then there's sort of a consensus has been established and there's a really wonderful book um called Hammer and Tickle which is about I think by Ben Lewis was out a few years ago about um jokes uh, under Stalin's communism and about how even though they obviously like didn't overthrow the government they just kept alive this sense of guys like this is wrong this isn't right is anybody else noticing this in a in a way that um, people were allowed to communicate without fear of you know getting sort of dobbed in so I think I think it is quite powerful even if it's just in a sort of small way that's a great place to, to leave it yeah lovely moment of shared moral clarity uh, Madeline Bressingham thank you so much thanks very much quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you Google Endgame, as I did last week, the whole first page of results takes you via the Marvel Cinematic Universe to Avengers Endgame. But there is another cultural milestone connoted by that title and one that's a little bit tonally different. The weird, creepy, brilliant play by Samuel Beckett about a master and a servant and the latter's two old parents who have no legs and live in dustbins. So pretty normal Beckettian stuff then. The latest production at the Old Vic does have the flavour of Hollywood about it. Clov and Ham are played by the big stars Daniel Radcliffe and Alan Cumming, with the existential bin dwellers played by Carl Johnson and Jane Horrocks. Our fiction editor Toby Lichtig went for a jolly evening out in the theatre and joins us now. Toby! Hello. Uh, is it? Is it a jolly night out? Um... It was, pretty, it was pretty jolly. Is it? I, I had a few disappointments with it, but actually the lack of jolliness was not necessarily the problem. And I, I do think something about Beckett is that his humour really stands up. Are there gags? There are, well, there, yeah, there are gags, yeah. I mean, there, there are, there are, there's a lot of physical comedy. He was massively into physical comedy. You know, he was a big fan of Buster Keaton. So there's a lot of, there are a lot of physical gags. There are fun, you know, word plays. And the, the whole setup. I mean, you know, the whole, you know, Beckett's world, it's, you know, it's... On the on the verge of total calamity at all times, it's incredibly grim. But there yeah. there are these shards of light amongst, amongst the grimness, and that's that's how he works. Nothing and is funnier than unhappiness. Nothing is funnier than unhappiness. Exactly, which which Beckett himself said is the most important line in the play. And I do think it's no mean feat, seventy years on, to actually make audiences laugh. I mean, you know, you, you've just been talking about satire, and satire is something with a very short shelf life um, yeah. in many ways. But but he, his comedy does stand up. Uh, let's talk about how that does happen, because 
thing about Beckett is he's not out of copyright. His estate is very, very active on his behalf. Oh, yes. And they basically say Beckett set down how to stage these plays and that's it. Yep. Does that mean if you if I go and see Endgame here, I go and see Endgame in New York, if I go and see it in you South it Africa, ago, yeah, you see it in 10 years time. Does it fundamentally the same play? Um, in many ways, yes. I mean, obviously, there are actors and actors can do different things and they have different ranges and different abilities to interpret. And no matter how maniacal the estate is, they can't stop actors acting in their own way and there are directors who can marshal the actors and there are various other mechanisms that you can use but in terms of staging and in terms of general artistic interpretation directors hands are pretty much tied so what does that go down to to the point of so so i mean exactly how many windows you're allowed on the set where they are how bare the sets you know are supposed to be generally very bare and it 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 means that they do feel quite stuck in time and Beckett himself was incredibly controlling I mean, he didn't really trust actors and he didn't really trust directors and he was incredibly controlling about his productions yeah. and and ended up directing quite a few of them himself he i think he, you know he there was a production of Endgame in in New York in the early 80s that deviated in various tiny ways which he sort of said was completely unacceptable he didn't even like curtain calls he said a curtain call offer at Endgame was an abomination Anyway. Lighten up. <laughs> well, yes, arguably. Yeah, it's not a play. I mean, but, it's a very good play. But, but, the, but actually, the prob- for me, the problem is it's, it's almost the opposite. Because, I think because directors' hands are tied, I've said that they're still funny and Endgame is still funny, but actually the emotional impact has gone in many ways. And it's not a question of lighten up, it's a question of actually move us, disturb us. Because when these plays came out in the 50s and early 60s, they were really quite troubling. Yeah. But now they feel quite stuck in that kind of sort of 50s existentialism. So it's a Cold War, everyone's yeah, about to be blown up. Yeah, right? exactly. And, you know, the, the point I try to make in my piece is, I mean, you know, this is just a very, very obvious point. Endgame, it's, you know, it's, it's on the cusp of end times. It's called Endgame. And it's, it's so ripe for, for restaging as a, or, you know, rethinking for the play of the current era, the Anthropocene era, you know. There's, there's, there's various references to things being in short supply, humanity on the cusp soon there's not going to be anyone left there's even stuff about how the weather's changed and i'm not saying you have to kind of make it incredibly obvious and you know have a big beating sun in the middle of the stage but there are there are subtle ways of making it more about our world and i think if directors were allowed to do that more and that's just one example i mean you know i'm not a director there are millions of different ways of of, of making this more um more impactful today i just I, i think it would it would just be so much of a better testament to beckett himself um, I mean, I know it's, it was him who, who, you know, who stipulated all these incredibly strict rules. Goes, so, so you couldn't have two women playing? Well, so there was a famous case about 10 or 15 years ago when, I can't remember where it was, which country it was, but someone tried to put on an all-female production of Godot yeah. and the estate tried to close it down. And in the end, they, there was a legal battle and they lost because of human rights yeah. laws, which superseded their own desire. But I mean, yeah, if it was down to Beckett, it would be, this, you know, it would all men... Apart from his female characters, you know, there's there's the, the old the mother in, in Endgame, but you know, people of a certain age, very little creative interpretation. You know, there is a reason why we still like going to see Shakespeare, four hundred years on, and it's because we can do different things with it. Which is not to say you can never stage Shakespeare traditionally. Yeah. It's never not to say you can never you know do it with Beckett. It's I mean, it's an impossible thing. It's pure speculation, but you can't help but think, had he survived, it might not have been quite so restrictive. Possibly not. Because I mean. Just, just one thing, you know. He, he, he's a, a playwright for whom language was such an important thing, and language is exactly. ever changing, exactly. as we all know. So, and there's quite a good example of, of this in Endgame. So you've got Alan Cumming, who's playing the main character Ham, who's this slightly malevolent, malign, but nonetheless vaguely sympathetic presence, stuck in his chair, blind, immobile, cantankerous. And one of his uh, early phrases is, "I feel a little queer." You know, he's, he's he's not feeling well, but he he's really camping it up. Alan Cumming he does it very well, and he really draws out that queer. And he, he, he makes it very camp in a way that it wasn't originally intended in the 1950s or, or certainly wasn't to that extent. And So, yeah, you can do stuff with the language still. But it's, it, it, yeah, it does, it does seem a great shame. And actually Beckett himself was probably a little bit more flexible than his estate is now. There was, a, there was an example. Someone tried to put an end game, I can't remember where it was again, and they, they strung barbed wire around the stage. And they'd already, they were already in rehearsals and he found out and he was really furious. But in the end he let it go because he was essentially quite a kind man in many ways and he didn't want to screw up the actors you know he, he didn't want to get them out of their jobs you know the, the production was already you know already in full swing and he just thought you know what let's just leave it because i, I don't want to cause too much hassle for yeah. these people and and in a way i think maybe the d- desire to be so faithful to his legacy has kind of 
yeah, being well, counterproductive. You, you can't interpret it in the same way. Obviously, the, the Samuel Beckett, had he survived, he would have, I imagine, you know, gone forth on a kind of case-by-case way, interpreting, deciding, seeing whether there's sympathies and all that sort of stuff, whereas for an estate, they just yeah. have to manage it by being black, black and white, yes and no yeah, about exactly. stuff. Exactly. Would you have liked uh, the... Hollywood actors, do you think? Because so these are big names. This is a big draw. Yes, Beckett uh, and coming and Daniel and Harry Potter. Yeah, (laughs) Harry Potter does Beckett. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, that's presumably a a good thing in terms of um, it'll get people through the door. It's a good thing in terms of it'll get through the people. Daniel Radcliffe's a very gifted actor, um, and actually, he so he's he's he plays the part of a ham's servant, clove, clove, and he's meant to be this incredibly world weary wizened browbeaten character he i mean he looks incredibly fresh fresh face still i mean i know how like he still looks like harry potter it's not really his fault and they, oh. and, they and they haven't tried to to age him which is probably a good thing and actually in the beginning he does very well because there's a lot of physical theater i mean the first sort of t- end game began life as a mime it was originally written as a mime. And in the first few minutes, God. all that happens is that Clove goes up and down the stage, gets up a ladder, opens a window, gets down the ladder, forgets his ladder, has to come back, he's got a limp. And actually Daniel Radcliffe does that very well and he brings this kind of weird, manic energy to it, which works really well. But as the play progresses, he just seems a bit fresh-faced, really. I don't think it really works. Coming, I liked more. I thought he was quite engaging. And there was a sort of certain, the campness... It's kind of impishness. He kind of encouraged our, complici- our complicity in quite a good way. And what about the, the parents? The parents, yeah. I mean, are they, they good? They, is that a good role? Yeah, they they are quite good roles. I mean, they're they're relatively minor in the play. They're, they're really important in terms of dramatic foil, um, but they they don't actually appear in the play for that long. So they're these two, you know, Ham himself is quite decrepit. They're these two even more decrepit parents who are live in these bins, and they pop up and they you know sort of pathetically and pathetically try to communicate and try to kiss and one of them saves the other, other a biscuit. And it is genuinely funny. I, maybe I'm not saying, making it sound very funny, but it is genuinely funny. Jane Horrocks is is Nell, who's the mum. She, the, sort of the prosthetics have gone a bit wrong with her and she's got this incredibly sort of taut face, which I think is meant to make her look very old. It just looks a bit like she's had a facelift. Um, so that, and she, she was, she didn't work so well for me. Um, the character playing, um, so the, the actor playing Ham, um, I thought did very well, and uh, Carl Johnson, and he's got some, he's got some really good lines in it, and he, yeah, he, he, he was kind of a good mixture of sort of barbed and pathetic. Because it's kind of a bit of a, not quite a rite of passage, but it's a thing that I think actors like to do, a bit of Beckett. Absolutely. Um, yeah. We, uh, we once run a review, which I'm going to quote from you now, which I've just found, um, do you remember when McKellum did Godot with Patrick Stewart? Yeah. Everyone in London rolled over for it. Yeah. Eric Griffiths, who is now sadly deceased, who nearly taught me Beckett, and thankfully I, I said no, because it, <laughs> it would just have been impossible, because he knows too much about it. Anyway, he reviewed it for the TLS. And this is what he said, which I, I think, I wonder how, how, how true this would be for this production, you have to say, Toby. Both audience and cast are feigning interest, like minor royalty asking the staff of a municipal swimming pool they've just opened but will never use. Do you get through a lot of chlorine? (laughs) That's very good. The idea idea being that you're kind of, you're sort of showing off that, oh, it's Beckett and that's all it takes. Do people really invest in this? I think they do. And I think there is a kind of spectacle element that there possibly shouldn't be. Um, I mean, that's not why I want to go and see Beckett. I, 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 I genuinely do find him funny and disturbing when done well and I like that combination of funny and disturbing sure. but I think uh, it's really sad that people short, yeah. feel that way about it as well because I, I once reviewed um, it was a, a stage version of, of what for the TLS many moons ago and uh, it was for the website and we had left the comments on huh. uh, and someone always a mistake yeah someone left a comment very much to that effect Stig of oh you cut you couldn't possibly enjoy this you're just pretending yeah and I could not get my head around that because I had loved it I thought it was hilarious it was so good I mean I'd probably but say it, I, it does seem to bring this this charge yeah I, it does and I think you know it's not to everyone's taste and that's fine I mean I would say Endgame's probably my least favourite of his four major plays and I've seen Happy Happy Days about three times and I've yeah. loved it each time I've seen it's it in different time, ways yeah. <laughs> yeah, <always. laughs> little, little minor adjustments yeah. um, but yeah you know you've got you've got Happy Days you've got Endgame Waiting for Godot and Crap's Last Tape which is a sort of yeah. more minor one but that's also totally fantastic which actually and, was the curtain raiser for, for Endgame originally 
Crap's Last Hope? Um, no, I think there was a tiny short called Act Without Words originally, for, but maybe 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 for the maybe it was for the English 50, version. 59, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and there's another. Ver- I mean, we should say this because this has Endgame's really not long because in a two-hour play, two-hour um, drip to the theatre, you get another play in this. You do, yes. Yeah, so actually, it's it, you, we kick off with a different play, Rough for Theatre Two. Rough for Theatre Two, um, which Beckett completers will be very familiar with, but everyone else might be less so. I I've read quite a lot of Beckett, and I think I know quite quite well, but I, I was not familiar with this play at all. It's great. I re- I really enjoyed it. I um, mean, again, it's Alan Cumming and Daniel it's a bit Radcliffe. Vaudeville, is it? It's just well, it's. Yeah, a little bit of vaudeville. And in fact, actually, the opening kind of music is very, very vaudeville. Um, it's, it's, there's a bit of physical comedy as well, you know, sort of light, light bulb with a mind of its own that keeps on turning off. But basically, the, the setup is you've got these two death angels who are chatting to each other with this man above them suspended in a light box about to jump. And they're kind of deciding whether he, whether they ought to intervene, whether he deserves to live or die. Very Bicettian setup. It's funny. There's a lot of wordplay. It's quite camp. I mean, the actual scripting is quite camp. It's quite homoerotic. And it doesn't really make too many demands on us emotionally. Why do it? Why have it with... Why pair it? Why bother? Well, actually, I mean, it's it's a good question. I suppose as a little, you know, it, it, Endgame is quite short, so as a little, you know, sorbet to kind of whet people's appetite <laughs> and give them their money's worth. Yeah. It's actually... It's, it's a good play. I mean, it's a good... I, I, like, play, I like dramatic shorts. I, I think it's a form that we don't see enough of. You get of. hardly ever see I love it. going to the theatre and just seeing something for 20 minutes and then maybe seeing something else as well. I don't just mean I, I can only bear 20 minutes of yeah. theatre, but it's, I, I think it is... A, you know, I'd rather 20 minutes there. than three and a half hours. <laughs> it was a good save. Yeah. But, you know, we like short stories. Why not go to the theatre and see a few shorts? So why stage it? It's good. It also, you know, it, it doesn't ask too much... of of us emotionally and therefore its failure to kind of plunge us into this Bicettian void is fine it's just a, you know it's a nice little short so the battle between British and Irish playwrights of the 20th century many people would say is Beckett versus Pinter <laughs> uh, there is a there is Pinter's constantly being revived there is a Pinter theatre in London there is there's a Beckett Festival. There's a Beckett Ireland. Festival. There's a Beckett Bridge. <laughs> okay. So the, so the competition is raging. I had a conversation uh, on the radio with someone who said they thought Pinter was now the, was now the more recognised as a significant figure than Beckett's. Who was more prolific? Oh, I suppose he did a lot more. He did all the screenplay stuff. Yeah. But, Lieutenant's Woman. But there's probably Sleep. still the same four, four or five canonical Pinters, aren't there? It's definitely a competition. That's the thing we all yeah. need to remember. But, but it, 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 <laughs> it is, can only it, be one winner. It can only be one winner, Toby. Who is the winner? And <laughs> <laughs> end this debate now. Okay. Short answer, Beckett, but longer answer. Firstly, Beckett's got the lead on him, hasn't he? You know, he was just around first. And in fact, Pinter was a, almost a disciple of Beckett's, and Beckett read some of his plays. One of the interesting things about Beckett, though, is I mean, you were right, he's much less prolific. He wrote his four main plays, none of which is very long, in this sort of 10 year spell between the early 50s and early 60s. We think of him as a playwright. But actually, he spent very little of his life writing plays, and, and actually, towards the latter end of his life, he, you know, he got more and more gnomic in his writing. You know, yeah. page here, poem there. And I think he said he only wrote plays as a diversion from writing novels. Yeah, so. but, but he kind of stopped writing prose yeah. in the in the fifties. Anyway, no. exactly. Yeah, he started writing Godot as a diversion did from writing read his prose. Novels? I did at university and loved them, and I loved Watts. I read Watts, the trilogy, and I yeah, read the Watts trilogy and studied him. I read the trilogy, but I wonder now if uh, and, I, and, and more I, pricks and kicks is brilliant. Yeah, it's excellent. Would we read if you sat down and read the trilogy now? Would you have the t- Would you have the patience for it? Pass. I don't know. Impossible to say. Well, maybe that's maybe. <laughs> I've re- but I've I wouldn't re- be I, reading it for the first time. So yeah. you know, yeah. I, I, I genuinely enjoyed it when I read it at the time, but also I was invested in thinking about him in a certain way, writing about him. I think I had yeah. a you know a whole few weeks to think about Beckett, so, so that felt like a. But I, I don't think I'd enjoy it in the same way as that. I would genuinely happily go and see any of his plays. The Times asked him to give his thoughts on the year in 1984. Can you imagine that? You know, this sort of random. Have you heard wish, this there before? I, so, think I wish so. Beckett had been alive in the era of Twitter. Oh well, well, this is it. And he, uh, yeah, who goes? So when the time has his hopes, the hopes for 1984. So it was a kind of they need to fill the arts pages at the end of 1983, and he said this resolution. He said a telegram back, which is great. Resolutions colon zero stop period. Hopes colon zero stop. Beckett. Totally brilliant. He but was the, dead five years later. Yeah. But he, the thing is, he replied. Yeah. He had yeah. a sense of humour. Yeah. Yeah. If he was really that cantankerous, he'd have ignored it. And he I think that is Beckett it. in a nutshell. And that's what you saw in this. If people go and see this, it's funny. It is funny. It's just, it's just you know, I wanted to be pulled into that void. A bit more. And I, a bit more, and I wasn't. All right. All right. Toby Lichtig, thank you very much indeed.
The obvious thing to do when introducing a feature about a group of writers famed for imposing constraints on their creativity would be to impose some kind of constraint on my creative introduction to said venture. But that would be a little obvious, I think. After all, we're talking about the Yuli Poor group here, whose motto runs all that is evident is suspect. And as a subcommittee of the Collège de Pataphysique, pataphysics being a branch of philosophy or science that explores imaginary phenomena that exist on some plane beyond the metaphysical, the last thing that Yuli Poor would want is obviousness. Members of the Oulipour, from Raymond Queneau, who founded the collective, or workshop, in the 1960s, to Daniel Levenbecker, a modern-day practitioner, are united by a drive for potential literature, a kind of poundian make-it-new, ramped up to the extreme. I'm going to narrate the same banal anecdote about a man on a bus 99 different ways, said Queneau before producing Exercice de Style. I'm going to write a 300-page novel without using the letter E. That was Georges Perec in 1969 before writing La Disparition. I'm going to completely blow the doors off the stultifying concepts of reader, protagonist and author, said Italo Calvino before writing 1979's novel If on a Winter's Night a Traveller. Why? Because constraint can lead to liberty, or as Perec put it, I give myself rules to be totally free. Apparently farcical stylistic choices can then contain deep important meanings. Games can be serious. Here in the studio to offer some guidance is Anna Aslanyan. Anna, hello. Hello. What triggered the formation of this workshop? What was it a reaction to? I guess it was just a reaction to, let's say, intellectual zeitgeist. You know, the era was um, requesting some new forms and new means of expression. Not everyone was uh, absolutely, not everyone saw eye to eye on that and not everyone thought that we need to come up with something new. So some of the bits of the academia were seen as quite stale and a bunch of people in uh, Paris got together. There were scientists, obviously Kuna, who you just mentioned, he was just uh, a writer with some interest in mathematics. And uh, they said, well, that's enough of this old stuff. We need to come up with something new and uh, to explore uh, potential of literature. It, it was a bit of a secret society. Uh, they didn't really mean to kind of teach everyone how to express new ideas in new ways or in any other ways. Uh, little by little they became uh, more well known. Until I came to the TLS I'm not sure I'd heard of Aleppo and I think I'd heard of it and then it's used in the TLS. We should say that people in the TLS use it as a... We've used it on this podcast as a kind of a Many joke. Times. The Olympian constraints of something that's not really Olympian. So it's used as a metaphor. Well, you, we use it pathetically. Yeah, we do. Well. But, but, I mean, if we were... A hundred people in the street, we said, Olipo, Olympian constraints. How many people now even have heard of it, do you think? Not that many. When I was working on this piece, I did mention it to a few friends. I mean, some of them were kind of more literary than others, let's say. But the majority would just shrug and say, oh, yeah, that bunch of clever clogs, you know, they are <laughs> at it again. Yeah. Someone uh, who had heard of Olipo, and uh, again, it might have been a metaphor in, in for him yeah. uh, rather than just, uh, you know... Uh, rigidly uh, exactly determined kind of movement and we may or may not come to that question as well but anyway someone said to me actually yeah are you presumably you're writing it uh, in a constrained kind of way what kind of constraints are you going to use of course I'm certainly writing it uh, under constraint my editor wants 2,000 words and that's exactly (laughs) how many words he's going to get so any writing is constrained by its nature I mean if you're just uh, writing a little shopping list or a treatise or a a tweet exactly which is the point we might get to Uh, were you tempted to try and write it without the letter E uh, not this piece, no, because uh, a <laughs> couple of months uh, earlier, I'd written a lipogram. It was uh, La Dispression, the famous novel by Georges Perec. It was the 50th anniversary of its publication uh, last March. And after that, I just write a little tribute. It was just a shortish piece about its translation into English, brilliantly done by Gilbert Adair in the 80s. It's called Air Void. So like Perec, he doesn't use the letter E yeah. in English. So I did it endlessly, and it was easier than I expected. Was it easy? Well, actually, it's quite contagious. You know, you get into it. And, uh, yeah. I was going to write the editor's letter as a lipogram without the letters S or A, and then I ran out of time. And then I thought, if I can't devote my... Did it take you much longer? I wouldn't say so, no. Really? I should have just no. done it. I got psyched out. I just thought, I can't do this. But... <laughs> 
When did, did you start on that kind of? No, I, I sort of sat down. You, there was a lot of talk. I was talking it up to Thea, <laughs> and then I sat down. I had a very Olympian short time to write the thing. I thought I, I can't risk it because I had to do it and then I had to file it. So, were well, you talking lipogrammatically, trying to? I was, do... was going to do it lipogrammatically. Yeah, yeah, but when you were talking to uh, to, to Thea, no, <laughs> I, I was just I because was just... that why it would been the secret. That's how Perak actually wrote uh, *Les Prisons*. I mean, he was uh, holed up somewhere in some writer's retreat, as we probably call it these days. Uh, people come and visit him, and he was working on something. I don't think he announced it as a as a lipogram. Certainly not to everyone, because when it came out, some people didn't realize it didn't have a letter E. Funnily enough, but um, imagine friends... being that reviewer who didn't spot that. He reviews a whole review and goes, "Very good work from George Perrette," <laughs> and doesn't notice that. Well, I mean, I don't know enough about the history of their publication and reviews, but um, great it is, is a slightly apocryphal story that some people missed it. But those who were friends and they came to visit, he'd actually make them speak to him without using the letter E. So he wanted them to collaborate on that. Get into and, the mood of it. Yeah, just get into his stride. And uh, people initially, like you say, oh, no, we can't do that. But then the conversation did flow. Mm. And, uh, did you want to try and ask? Should we try and ask again? Can I ask a question? Oh, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> thing is, is you can't have the constraint imposed on you by someone else. I think you have to... I oh, really? It seems important that you should come up with your own constraint. Uh, it is important, but think of translators. Think That's of people true. who... Uh, most of the, the work that we've got in these uh, books under review possible, yeah. I mean, they follow someone else's constraints. Yeah. That's true. Uh, whether or not they replace them by something kind of equivalent or similar or analogous is uh, a matter for them to decide. Because the translators of La Disparition had to... They, was it that they would choose the most common vowel in their right. final uh, It's uh, E in English, uh, also in Italian. In Spanish, I think... Is a, uh, yeah. I mean, ah, I suppose. Uh, the Russian version doesn't have an O. And in Japan, is, it would be a, it wouldn't be a vowel because obviously the alphabet is different. The uh, yeah, well, everything. to be honest, I, I'm not familiar with. Uh, uh, yeah, I know that there must be a translation. Yeah. I haven't actually yeah. looked into. Because we're talking about the Perec, um, it seems important to just talk about La Disparition a little bit, just because that is the the text that sort of carries Ulipo for most people. It's the best, probably the best known text, I would say. And that does sort of summarise what it is that Ulipo is. It's it's games and it's silliness, which we'll come to, but it's also it has meaning and it is it's an important it's a device to to create something that that lasts. Yes, and also for Perex was a way to talk about something which is missing, which is disappeared. They disappeared, I guess would be one way to put it in English, and that's his parents who were killed in the war because their letter uh, which is missing here. The French way to pronounce it is uh, euphonic with uh, the pronoun they. I don't know whether we're reading too much into it, yeah. but um, Perec himself, when pressed, you know, when, uh, when he didn't have to wear that mask of silliness, he uh, did mention the fact that, yes, it is about my parents. So how seriously did they take that? that this seems to me that when they first, when they started and actually throughout the whole movement, which, as you say, is still ongoing... Do they really believe through these constraints you find liberty uh, and therefore sort of a greater truth? Or is it just intellectual game playing? A lot of it was intellectual game playing, and, uh, which is just as well, you know. We don't have to call it escapism. Yeah. It's just uh, quite a natural thing for anyone, you yeah, know, just, for Homo Ludens. Yeah. yeah. How serious were they? One of the um, authors... Um, featured in this review, Dennis Duncan, when uh, he writes his intellectual history of the phenomenon, he asked this question head on. Is that a mask or what was or what was the actual mask? Were they just, because sometimes they look dead serious. Yeah. Perhaps that was uh, the actual mask. On the other hand, I mean, who cares? We don't we don't really need to appreciate a joke. Yeah, uh, because there's an argument when sort of modernists, when they have sort of machine learning and there's a sort of, there's this high-minded view that there is a truth that's being reached by... Um, automated poetry, for example, is that what's getting this? And but then there's things like there's a great example of one of the rules where the S plus seven method, where every noun in a text is replaced by the seventh noun further on in a dictionary. I'd love to read that, but presumably it's just nonsense. Um, well, I mean, it depends really on on the text, so yeah. it's kind of unpredictable. It also depends on what dictionary you pick. Yeah. So it could be slightly nonsensical, but um, uh, I I wouldn't necessarily see this rule as the most sophisticated or 
the more. But is there a high, I'm going to guess is that is there a belief that by doing this you're getting to a truth that the conscious mind isn't going to get to? Well, that was one of the kind of lines of thinking because uh, we must remember that when uh, Ulipo first emerged, there was um, I mean it's kind of um, as old as cybernetics more or less, or let's say cybernetics, cybernetics as a mass phenomenon. I mean, so to me, if if I were to try and track the history of this movement, I would look at it as uh, running parallel with uh, uh, the history of computing, because um, there were, I think there was uh, some kind of ambiguous <laughs> relationship between uh, the members of their group, especially back in the 60s, and uh, computers, because they were kind of, they really wanted to get into it, but they were slightly uh, limited, you know, constraints, let's say, in their resources. <laughs> Can you go now? I think you have to be invited. You have to. You have to be uh, invited uh, specifically. Would you, bus would you like something. to go? Sure. Would it be fun? I mean, uh, yeah, absolutely. And in the sixties, would it have been fun? Would it have been a bunch of folks showing off, or would it have been? <laughs> people sort of warmly and wittily kind of exploring things. Yeah, well, I'm sure it's... Uh, I, would, uh, I think it's zero, a bit but... of both, whether it's whether it's people having a lovely convivial time and people taking it deadly serious. It will be a microcosm of Is there of any anything. chance that anyone from the current Aleppo movement listens, listening. listens to the TLS podcast? It's not impossible. Well, Is there it? are 41 well, members I mean, as of 2018. It, it feels unlikely, doesn't it? <laughs> not, not all of them are alive, so oh. only oh, right. a bunch oh, of okay. them are alive. Oh, right. How many are alive then? couple dozen I think. Oh, really? okay so say, but we would like an invitation <laughs> if one of those 20 odd people is listening to this yeah. there's a constraint if ever there was one um absolutely we'd go yeah yeah absolutely all right we'll they're on the jiff here okay okay well well we should do this well i hope we do and a uh, school trip coming on <laughs> an Olympian school trip for mind boggles uh, Anna thank you so much for, for joining us my pleasure thank you that's all we have time for this week our thanks go to Toby Lishtig Anna Aslanian and Madeleine Brettingham the paper is laden with poetry this week including two different reappraisals of old John Donne plus plenty more including Jonathan Lynn who we mentioned today on his experience of directing Kirk Douglas get subscribing now next week the paper will have a historical bent and so therefore will we until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.